Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. So we are um, going to start in Exodus, um, in the in the neighborhood of uh, chapter thirteen and fourteen. Uh, there is a lot in this passage that connects to the Israelites' journey into the wilderness and onto the Promised Land. But today being Easter, I thought it was an especially good day to look not just at the, the history of what happened, but the theology of what happened. In this section where we are in Exodus, as, as you know, um, there's a crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, it made me think of the joke, why did the chicken cross the road? The answer, of course, is it's kind of the, the anti-joke, right? You're expecting something amazing and say, well, to get to the other side. I thought that was, uh, I never really thought about being an anti-joke, but uh, uh, I, I thought it was funny. Somebody had said, well, uh, they asked uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, why did the chicken cross the road? And he said, of course, uh, he had a dream. <laughs> and they asked Colonel Sanders, why did the chicken cross the road? And he said, wait a minute, did I miss one? <laughs> so why did the chicken cross the road? Why did the Israelites cross the Red Sea? To get to the other side. A lot of reasons, most of which we'll look at next week, to be honest. But let me call your attention briefly to Exodus 14. Let's go to verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of all the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. The reason that they crossed over was so that God could get the glory. Moses led the people so that God could get the glory. Jesus led the way for us so that God could get the glory. This whole book is about God and the way he works to bring himself glory. Is he concerned about us and our everyday things? Absolutely. Is he concerned about our little battles? Absolutely. Should we pray about them? Absolutely. But is that the big focus? No, God is the big focus. One of my favorite passages, if not my favorite Easter passage, is in Luke. This isn't on your list. You know the story. Luke chapter 24 there's these two guys, they're on the road. A lot has happened in Jerusalem, and they're on their way out of town, and they meet a guy who's curious about what's going on. He said, what are you guys talking about? I'm paraphrasing here. And they said to him, 
If you're in Luke 24, we're at verse 20. He said about Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, but we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since this has happened, and moreover, some of our company have amazed us. I'm sorry, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but, they, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. All the scriptures concerning himself and about his glory. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. You'll see a theme here. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. Throughout scripture, water is indicative of chaos, which is the opposite of God. God is orderly. We see in the New Jerusalem, perfect architecture, everything square, the ocean very chaotic. One of the first things, not the first thing, but one of the first things God does is literally to part the waters. Go to your next passage, Genesis 7. I'm sorry. Exodus 7. Incidentally, in Genesis 7, it's all about the water. We saw in Exodus 7, verse 17, that the very first plague is his ruling over the water. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. We know that his plagues highlighted his power over creation. We, we saw creation. We've seen his power over this water. At the Red Sea, we just read in Exodus 14, 15, tell the people to go forward. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. You guys can figure this out, but the point is Jesus is the better Moses against Satan, who is, in essence, the better Pharaoh. This theme is that throughout history, God has been wanting to take his people from where they are to where they should be. 
And in the process, he gets the glory. From where we are to where we're supposed to be, and God gets the glory. Joshua 3. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, I'm sorry, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. It's in there somewhere. Joshua 3. Verse 14. They made it. Almost. They made it almost to the promised land. They've got a little more work to do. Verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan... And the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all of its banks throughout this time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood up and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the sea they were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the, peace, the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. They crossed over the Red Sea. Some 40 years later, they crossed over Jordan. The methods were a little different, but the act was still the same. They had been in the wilderness. They were going to the promised land. How did he do it? by parting the waters. This concept where God's people are exiled and then he retrieves them continues. If you'll turn to Isaiah. Chapter 43, for those of you that didn't get a little slip. Isaiah 43. For a teacher, it's a wonderful thing to hear the Bible's turn. Isaiah 43, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Pretty clear what that's referring to, right? Isaiah's looking back and says, this is the Lord who makes a way in the sea. This is, this is him. This was something he did that we can celebrate. And I love the next couple of verses. We remember these. Verse 18, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Don't you see it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. He's doing a new thing. But he keeps doing it over and over. Because it brings him glory and it gets us from one place where we are to where we're supposed to be. 
go to John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I think you guys have me beat. John 1, verse 29. I don't know. Maybe we'll back up with verse 24 or 25. They ask him, this is, they're asking John the Baptist, why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Do you know where Bethany across the Jordan is? It's that same place where Joshua had him camped right before they crossed over. It's right across from Jericho. You see where he was? He was right across from Jericho. That's, that's where Bethany at Jordan, across the Jordan is. The same exact place where Joshua had the people where the waters parted on dry land where they marched over. Here we have John the Baptist saying, there's somebody who does it not with water, but something better than water. Here we have Jesus coming. He, of course, he gets baptized and we find he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John the Baptist says in verse 30, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel, so that we could see his glory. And we know that when he comes out of the water, and the Spirit descends, and it says... In verse 34, I've seen and am bore witness that this is the Son of God. He gets the glory. Turn to Luke. This is our dry land detour in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. And I love it how the same people keep showing up. We've got Moses and Elijah. And by the way, Elijah did a part the water thing too. You can look it up. He rolls up his cloak and hits the water and the water's part. Like I said, God keeps doing the same thing over and over. I think it's so cool. So here we have what's called, of course, the transfiguration. Let's see, where are we? Uh, 928. Now, Eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Do you know what the Greek word there for departure is? Exodus. So Elijah, who did the part the water thing, Moses, who did the part the water thing, 
Jesus, who was there with the original part the water thing, they're all talking about his exodus, his leaving. What an amazing conversation. And of course, his disciples totally missed the point, well, especially Peter, of course, who often is late to the point. Let's, let's hang out here. That's the opposite point, right? We don't want to hang out here, right? We want to get to the next place. They're talking about his departure. So, when we think of the empty tomb, it's like the staff is still up. The way to cross over is still there. The Ark of the Covenant is still standing in the middle of the Jordan. The path is still open. For right now, that empty tomb is still empty. The door is still open. It's literally like Jesus left the door open for us to cross over. I mean, that's Easter. We talked last week that Jesus is the first fruits. If he did it, we can do it because we're in him. First Corinthians. I'm sorry if this sounds a little repetitive, but it's kind of cool that it's repetitive. Paul touches on this. Verse 1, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Paul's making the point that that all the people that passed over, they were all there. Now, he's going to make a further point that with most of them, God was not pleased, for they went to the wilderness. And it kind, of, it kind of makes me think of the disciples after the resurrection. resurrection they were a little bit aimless, right? They weren't quite sure what to do. They were off their game a little bit. This was not what they expected. Like the Israelites, they crossed the Red Sea. This wasn't exactly what they pictured. They started grumbling. They started complaining. Again, the point is that, yeah, it's a story about what God does for his people. But it's mainly a story about what Jesus does to show his glory. And we are part of that. We are part of that. That's the Easter story. Over and over, God divides the waters. 
God brings his people over. God divides the water. He brings his people over. He opens a tomb so that he can bring his people over. Over and over. I will make a couple observations about Exodus. If you read the first part of the passage, well, I guess we'll go back there. Back to Exodus. Because I think this does speak to human nature. Chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land, although that was near the land of the Philistines. God said, let the, pe- let the people change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt. Now, that's kind of funny because it's not long before they do see war anyway. But God has, throughout this whole journey, he's dealing with, with, with humans, you know, fickle, unreliable, whining, complaining humans. people that don't understand, that don't have the perspective. Um, Not unlike, I think, the disciples who were, you know, uh, trying to uh, um, work a game for who could be the greatest in the kingdom. You know, they didn't, no, no, that's that's not what we're doing here. You'll hear about a pillar of cloud and a pillar of night. I'm sure Dad will probably talk about this. They were guided. They were protected. Both of those things. Jesus is our guide to this new life. It's, that's kind of our Easter story. I um, I had a passage I wanted to um, to read from one of our commentaries. If I can find it. Okay, that doesn't sound good. Everything's on battery. I don't think anything's plugged to the wall, so I think I'm okay. (laughs) But this buzz, I've never noticed that buzz when I touch my computer. This kind of threw me off there a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, (laughs) Exodus has been used as a story of liberation, which it is. Uh, Some people have made it a story about a political liberation. In fact, there's within some churches and some denominations actually something called liberation theology. You know, God wants to rescue his people sort of thing. And like a lot of things, it's kind of true. It's kind of true, but it's not the main point. And um, I'll see if I can read this. 
What God did for Israel some 3,500 years ago is not something we can do with as we please. It is not so much a story about Israel as much as a story about God and who he is. It is not a story that will be duplicated in the lives of individual Christians anytime they get into trouble, but a story that gives us a glimpse of the underlying battle between God and evil, well beyond our circumstances, a battle that has eternal ramifications. The fact of the matter is, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we must remember that we are, I'm sorry, we must remember not that we are awaiting God's deliverance, but that deliverance has already come in Christ. We are not to say what I'm going through is like Israel's Egypt experience, but my Egypt is behind me. I am on the other side of the sea. So how am I expected to behave? Those portions of the book of Exodus that are most relevant for our lives, in other words, are to be found in subsequent chapters. So it's not like their life got great on the other side immediately. But that part of the story is mostly about God and not so much about them. It puts us in our place. The Exodus is not a story of liberation in the sense in which many use it today, but a story of salvation. This is not to say, to be sure, that the Bible doesn't speak to the issue of man's inhumanity to man. But when all is said and done, it's not the story of mere politics any more than it is a story of our own troubles. It is rather the foundational event in Israel's existence as a people before God. The means by which God brings them into existence is one manifestation of God's pattern of conduct that extends well beyond any specific historical incidences. It is a pattern of conduct that is given its most concrete manifestation in the death and resurrection of the new Moses and the countless numbers who have and will follow him across the sea. We serve a better Moses, a better leader, we have a better destination. We have a better guide after the fact. We know that the, when did the disciples get their act together? In Acts, right? That was a clue. They got their act together in Acts. When who came? The Holy Spirit came. Right? John the Baptist said, I'm doing this with water, but there's somebody coming who's got the Holy Spirit. That's when things start to make sense. So we are, of all peoples, most blessed. So we're in a unique position that we are on the other side, like it says here, figuring out how to behave through the Holy Spirit's help. But we can still see over and call other people to cross. And that's the work of evangelism, of course. There are so many opportunities as you can think about this. So many stories that all weave together. So I hope that you'll, uh, when you encounter them in your conversations with people, that uh, you can somehow weave them together, uh, perhaps better than I did to, uh, to bring people to Jesus. The empty tomb is just another picture 
of the waters being parted so that we can cross over. All right, I'll pause there. Went a little faster than I thought. Any comments? Well, 